tell a good tale about a secret conspiracy, and you've got the makings of a great blockbuster. In real life, be careful. There are a lot of false conspiracy theories, but the conspiracy Jesus faced in his last week was real. Turn with our study leader, Dave Wurtson, to Matthew 26. It's the introduction to the climax of Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. Things are kind of hard right now, and if you want to make a lot of money, I've got a way that you can do it. What you need to do is you need to come up with a really good tale of conspiracy. If you can spin a yarn that brings together this whole secret plotting, meetings, you've got it. You don't believe me? Robert Ludlum. I've been reading Robert Ludlum. He wrote about Ireland. He's been writing novels ever since I can remember. And yet he wrote The Born series. Anybody ever seen any Born movies? It resurrected Matt Damon's career, or it just ignited it. And why do you like the Bourne series? Because you're just captivated by the idea that there's a secret organization, secret meetings, there's lies, there is murder, there's intrigue. Now, I want to warn you, you need to be really careful because as I look back over my own life, all of my life, there's been this idea that there are secret organizations and they are taking over the world. In fact, the Da Vinci Code is all about that. And Dan Brown has made millions, you know, intriguing the multitudes with this secret conspiracy. And so one thing I want you to warn, warn you about in the, in, the day, in the days of Internet, you need to be careful. Because a lot of conspiracies are just make-believe. And they're not true. Like one of the things that's produced you know, really terrible devastation is, is a book called The Protocols of Zion. And it said that there's a group of Jews who totally control the world and they're taking over. And it's a conspiracy. It's a plot. And, and they're out to destroy life as we know it. And that led ultimately to the Holocaust. And that Protocols of Zion in the Muslim community is still very active. And it, it creeps up in our society as well. That's one example of a conspiracy theory that's totally based on untruth. So be careful of that. I really want to warn you as a pastor, one of the things that as the body of Christ, we want to be people of truth. We want to be people that don't fight our enemies with plots and lies. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Because as we think about the crucifixion of Jesus and as we move towards Good Friday, as you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, there's a real live, honest to goodness conspiracy. It's not the born ultimatum. You know, it's not one of Ludlum's tales. This is the real thing. There was a real plot that was being instigated against the Lord Jesus during his last week. The book of Matthew begins very early with the religious hierarchy in Judea turning against John the Baptist and turning against Jesus. As we move into the time of the celebration of the Passover, Matthew begins to really weave this plot and expose it for what's going on. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, we want to begin with the conspiracy to murder. Matthew exposes that Jesus, during that last week, there is a conspiracy to take him out. Now, one of the things that drives a conspiracy theory is your fear. It just is a lure that pulls us in. This idea that there's a secret plot that's against us is going to destroy the world, and that leads us to do some really destructive things. 
Matthew tells us about a real conspiracy, but I want you to ask yourself, as I read these verses, who's really in control? Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, just to bring you up, so to catch you up into, into Matthew's argument, Matthew has the Lord Jesus. He slows down the action of the last week, and he has Jesus give us his teaching about not just his sacrifice on Calvary, which he predicts is going to take place, but he also tells us about his second coming. In Matthew 24, he talks about the destruction of the temple by the Romans. He predicts it, which is one of the reasons why I trust in Jesus. Because in 33 AD, he was able to predict that the Romans would destroy the Jewish temple in 70 AD. But he went not just from the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, he jumped all the way to a future time when he will return. And so Jesus takes time during his last week to talk to us about the ultimate culmination of human history when he's going to initiate a kingdom where truth and justice and love and mercy and compassion and health are going to rule the day. Very different from the kind of a a world kingdom that we live in today. So that's what Jesus has been talking to his disciples about. He told them stories about being prepared. Remember the story about the virgins who had oil in their lamps and those that didn't. He told stories about the talents. One was given one, one was given five, and, and how they needed to multiply their talents. And the one that thought God was a Scrooge that buried his talents in the ground, saying that life sucks and I don't want to really follow what the king wants me to do. And God takes away that person that buried his talents and he gives it to the one that, that had multiplied multiply his talents. Jesus tells all those incredible stories that, that teach us how to live getting ready for his kingdom to come. So it's after Jesus had taught all those incredible truths. So this week might be a good time to read some of those things between Palm Sunday and what we're going to look at this morning with the Last Supper and the events leading up to the Last Supper. That's what Jesus taught during this last week. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples. So Jesus is speaking to his own people today. Sometimes Jesus addresses the crowd. But today in Matthew, Jesus is pictured as addressing you, as a follower of Jesus. As someone, most of you in this room have decided, I have accepted Jesus as my Savior, and I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to follow him. So what does Jesus want to talk to his followers about just a few hours before the great events of the crucifixion takes place. Let's find out. He says with disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. The Passover is the big Jewish feast. We're in a Jewish context. The Passover is the time if you were a Jewish boy like Jesus was from the time that you were a little boy, you remember on the Passover asking the father of the home, why we gathered together this night? What is the meaning of this night? And the daddy tells the story of the great deliverance from Egypt. And you would sacrifice a lamb and you would tell the story about how God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt out from bondage into the glorious freedom and began to move them towards Mount Sinai, where God entered into a covenant with them. That would all be in the mind of the disciples, and that's part of the background of this passage. All of Jesus' Jewish disciples are thinking about, we're entering in to remembering the great deliverance events of our whole history, the time of our deliverance. So that's the setting. The disciples, it's very close to the Passover, and the Son of Man, Jesus says this, the Son of Man 
will be handed over to be crucified. And I want you to think about that. In these two verses, we have Jesus. I just told you he had just finished teaching about all that's going to take place in the ultimate kingdom of God. Now Jesus says here that the Passover is going to be celebrated in two days. And Jesus also says that the Son of Man, which is a very powerful reminder of Daniel telling us about the great ultimate Messiah, the Son of Man that appears with the glories of heaven, the son, but also a human being, the word son of man in Hebrew, and when it's used in the Old Testament, just stands for a human being. So it combines Jesus' great ultimate divinity with his, his humanity. It's all right there. But Jesus is also able to say two days before the Passover, I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. Now, what does that tell you about who's in control? Are things out of control in the last week of Jesus? Who's actually writing the story? Tell me. That's why you don't need to be afraid of conspiracy. This is a real conspiracy. None of you as God's children should ever act like things are totally out of control, that things are just totally spinning. When you feel that spinning inside of you and you feel the fear welling up inside of you, that's where the high priests are. That's where the elders of the people are. What the high priest and the elders of the people are saying, man, there's a gigantic people movement. It started on Palm Sunday. We had thousands of Jews that were waving palm branches that they brought up from Jericho. They cut off branches from the trees in the Mount of Olives and they threw them in front of this, of this upstart Galilean that doesn't join with us and isn't part of our, our little group. And if we don't stop him, we're going to lose our temple. If we don't stop him, Our nation's going to disappear, and they're afraid, and they're going to do some really destructive things. And what I want you to see, if you're a child of God, you need to understand, you need to listen to what Matthew's telling us. Jesus was actually writing the script. It doesn't alleviate human responsibility. The bad guys are really bad guys. The good guys are really good guys. And you need to decide, as I tell you this story today, which side you're going to be on. You're going to decide how you're going to live your life. You're going to go out this week, and you're going to decide who do you trust in? How do you make things happen? What do you do when the pressure is put on? Look at the contrast in the next verse. Then the chief priest, this would be Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, and this is a whole priestly family. They live in the upper echelon of the city of Jerusalem, they have lots of wealth. They're controlling the, the religion of Jerusalem. And their position of power is being threatened by this young upstart Galilean, as I just was explaining to you. That's who they are. For some of the kids that wonder, how do I know this is true? In archaeology, we've actually found some artifacts that talk about the family of Caiaphas. It's very possible that in Jerusalem today that the archaeologists have uncovered the family tomb of Caiaphas. So no matter what you believe about what I'm talking about, the more that we dig in Jerusalem, the more that we dig in the Holy Land, the more we find out that there's substantial, you know, real hard basis to what's taking place here. So this family of Caiaphas, the high priest, is very important. And notice that he assembled together in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus. See it there in verse 4? They plotted in a sly, cunning way. They plotted together to kill him. 
But they said, let's not do it during the feast, or there may be a riot among the people. So we have this contrast. Jesus meets with his disciples, and he tells them, I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. The chief priests, with Caiaphas leading the way, they meet together in their palace, and with cunning and intrigue. Some of you are sitting here going, saying, Dave, you don't know the world that I live in. Some of you that are involved in the political scene, you say, you don't know, man. People lie. You know, people slander. You have to plot. There has to be intrigue. You'll never get ahead in the world. Some of you say in business, man, we have these secret meetings. I'm in meetings. Sometimes you have to deceive. Sometimes you have to put out stories that aren't true. It's the only way to get ahead. You see, the end is important. We got to save the temple. We got to save our people. We got to save our jobs. We got to save people's careers. And you lie. And you plan. And you're going to decide, every one of us, myself included, that can happen in the church family. What's happening here? They're getting together secretly. Beware, be careful of secret meetings. Be careful when you can't just be open. Be careful of that. The high priests believe if if you would have sat in a meeting, they wouldn't have said, well, man, we're going to lie, we're going to cheat, we're going to murder an innocent man because we're really bad people, we're evil people. That's not at all what they would be saying. These are religious people. They are good people. They have beautiful robes. They have beautiful incense. They have all the religious stuff. But their hearts are dark. So is mine. And if you ever lie when you're put under pressure in order to accomplish a good end, that's Caiaphas. Any of you ever plot, that's this sly, cunning thing. You see, Matthew wants to get us into this story, and I get to decide, who am I going to be like? As a disciple of Jesus, it supposedly says I worship him. As I read about these high priests and I read about what they're doing, how do I live? In my own life, in walking with the Lord Jesus, one of the things, as I look back over my life, that could have caused Mary and myself to totally turn away from Jesus is those that were supposedly religious leaders, those that were older than us, those that were responsible for us, that would lie to us. Just look us right in the face and lie. A lot of my friends that I went to a Christian high school with don't love Jesus at all anymore because they were just flat-out lied to. Some of them were abused. On the outside, everybody was religious and worshiping, but on the inside, there was cunning and there was deceitfulness and there was plotting to get rid of people. What I want to share with you, what what this week is about, is letting the Holy Spirit expose our hearts, expose our hearts. And I want you to pray for Mary and myself. And I pray for you that the Lord will help us to keep living our lives with honesty and humility and openness. That we'll never make a decision to lie or to plot or to be cunning in order to preserve our position or our place. Don't ever do that. Because that's not Jesus. So I got to decide, and you got to decide which side are you on. We've got a conspiracy here to murder. And some of you say, well, I don't think Sunday morning has anything to do with Monday morning living. Oh, yeah, it does. You police people, a lot of you are in police work. The Son of God knows the plots, knows about all the secret meetings. 
knows about the murderous violence. A lot of you that are policemen, you say, man, my fellow officers don't believe this religious stuff at all because, man, they see the hypocrisy. You can go out this week and say, hey, I learned in church on Sunday that the New Testament's filled with exposure of religious hypocrisy. It's idiotic to turn away from Jesus because religion often is hypocritical. Jesus is the one that causes you to know lying and cunningly being a conspirator in the name of preserving a holy place, in the name of preserving your own religious position, is totally the opposite of Jesus. So tell your brothers and sisters and friends, expose the truth to them. It goes on here. Jesus says this. We change gears now. We go from this murderous conspiracy situation where we don't need to be afraid because God's really in control. Now we have a beautiful scene. We have this incredible, humble anointing. It says here, when Jesus was in Bethany, this is the place where Lazarus lived. The Gospel of John fills in some of the details. It tells us that Martha, you would expect Martha to do this. She's taking care of everything. She's serving, kind of like my Mary, who has the personality of a Martha. She's making sure everyone's, and a lot of, a lot of you join her in that. But Mary... Her sister is the one that actually does this anointing. But in Matthew, it doesn't focus on the names at all. But it said, Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. One thing I want to teach you as you're studying the synoptic gospels, don't just harmonize them quickly. Because every one of them is giving you a snapshot. If you're an artistic personality, you know that it's in the details. The way that you tell a story in a picture, the way that I tell a story when I'm writing something, the way that Ludlum tells you a story in The Boring Conspiracy, it's the, the, the story's in the details. So read God's word really carefully. In fact, I made a mistake, and I'll admit it in just a minute. I want you to notice, it said, look here. When Jesus was in Bethany, so this, remember, this is the town where we started out with in the triumphal entry, and right next door to it is Bethphage, a little bit farther to the west, or to the east, I mean, in the home known as Simon the leper. We don't know who Simon the leper is, but as soon as we hear the word leper, if you're Jewish, what do you think? If you're from a Jewish background, what's the word that you think of? Good, excellent, uncleanness. So Matthew's telling us, we just had the high priest. They're supposed to be the clean ones. They're supposed to be the ones that are overseeing the place where you really offer the sacrifices. Now we're in a place in the Old Testament which is unclean. This is the home of Simon the leper, which tells us a lot of who, about who Jesus identifies with. It's the lepers. It's the tax collectors. It's the prostitutes. They're the ones that get the message. And Matthew's trying to drive it home to us. He's in the home of Simon the leper. A woman doesn't tell us who she is. When you really do godly things, you're not concerned about your name. A woman. It says a woman came to him with an alabaster jar. Probably came from Egypt. It was the normal way to keep Chanel number 56. You're really expensive. Really, the ointments that you would use... In burying somebody, it would be an alabaster flask, has a very narrow throat. You would break the throat, and then you'd pour the contents. This is a year's salary, this stuff, a whole year. So it says that the woman comes with an alabaster, very expensive perfume, and she poured it. Now, what would you think it would say? Poured it on his, everybody, you didn't read the text, and I did it. Because John's gospel does tell us that she poured the ointment on Jesus' feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. 
And that's a very dominant theme. And that's true. In fact, that did happen in this case. But Matthew doesn't say, Matthew doesn't say that the woman poured it on his feet. It says here that she poured it on his, everybody tell me, on his head as he was reclining at the table. And this is the picture. In fact, this is a very European picture. You notice the table. It's the way that we eat. They're seated at the table. It shows you how we put things together. Actually, the Jewish people ate kind of like they eat in Morocco. You would eat like this. You would get down like this, and there would be somebody else right here. You get around a circle. In Morocco, you take kind of a bread. you got to use your right hand, not your left hand. And that's why if you cut off a person's right hand, they're going to starve to death, Okay. Because uh, your kids can ask your parents what they do with the other hand after church today, okay? But the woman comes up, and you got to understand that scene where they're lying down together and they're eating from the thing, because that explains how you can have this conversation. People don't hear what's going on. So the woman comes up, maybe behind Jesus, and she pours some of the ointment on Jesus' head. Now, if you're really understand the Tanakh, the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, what do you know about anointing with the head? What is that immediately oil, incense, pouring on the head? What do you think about? A king. When Israel wanted a king, they anointed Saul. Samuel anoints Saul on his head. When Saul is rejected and Samuel, a very powerful story that all of you dads need to tell your kids, When Saul goes to the home of Jesse and looks at all the big brothers and David is out in the field and they call David, he anoints David as the next king. You anoint an Israelite king on the head. When I taught you about the Palm Sunday, I stressed to you Jesus presented himself as the king. That's a very powerful idea. I want you to know that Jesus does present himself as the Jewish messianic king. But his kingdom in his first coming is going to be a different kingdom. It's not going to be a kingdom that conquers the Romans with swords and with spears. It's going to be a kingdom that conquers the Roman Empire with changed hearts. Do you understand that? And that same king is moving in the world today. Don't ever underestimate him. One day he is going to come with greater power than nuclear bombs. But today... He's coming in the quiet, pervasive, as the ointment, the incredible aroma begins to permeate this room. It's a picture of how the gospel is going to reach out, and it's going to bring a beautiful aroma throughout the world. As people like you, even 2,000 years later, really believe that this is true. And you're like this woman. You're humble. You don't care whether your name is mentioned. You don't care whether you're important. Where the rubber meets the road, what the Lord does in my own heart. Like for years and years and years, when the funeral was to be done, I did the funeral. Now we've grown as a church family. So when Mike Wagner died, I just prayed. Lane did the service. And I'm just telling you honestly from my heart, there's a part of me that goes, man, what's going on here? You know what that is? Jealousy. It's wrong. So pray for me. You do the same thing. Some of you leave church because you're not recognized. That's what's going on. This woman doesn't care. Her name isn't in the Matthew text. Jesus even says at the end of this text, it says, wherever the gospel's been presented. Look at it further. It says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They got angry. 
They're saying, what's this waste? Be careful of people that, that attack waste in worship. You hear what I just said? Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold for a high price and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. You see that? She has done a good, beautiful thing. You artists in the room, please hear that. Your Savior loves beautiful things. This, those of you that are into drama, this is a beautiful, dramatic thing. No words needed to be spoken. You smash a jar. You anoint someone's head. Then you put it on its feet according to John's gospel. It is an artistic, dramatic, powerful moment. Those of you, that, that's a part of your personality. That's a very important thing. Those that fold their arms and stay on the outside, they get angry. And they very practically, we should have given the money to the poor. How did Jesus respond to that? Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this good news, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So our precious Savior reminds us. And some of the critical scholars would say, well, this is, like, this is crazy because it doesn't even give the woman's name. Yeah, John's gospel filled in the blanks near the end of the first century. I do know her name is Mary. I do know she's the sister of Lazarus. Her name has become well-known throughout the world. Is God's word true? Yes. Why didn't Matthew not give his name? Because those that are truly anointing Jesus don't care about their name being mentioned. They will love the beautiful acts. Never forget when I was at seminary. You know, man, at seminary, you know, you're scrung, you're trying to get the bills paid, you're working hard. A lot of my students, you have to teach them at night because they're working all during the day. Students will leave my class to go and work at Baylor hospitals. Students that are working like crazy. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, they built a sculpture right in the middle of our campus. When Dave and I first went to seminary, the campus faced Live Oak. It was just these three kind of simple buildings. Our classes were in the basement of the library now, which is an old part of the library, and it was in this old building. And I'll never forget, they actually built a sculpture. I remember thinking, I walked in, why in the world? We've got students that don't have enough money. We built a sculpture. And I was indignant. You ever get indignant about stuff like that? What was the sculpture? It was Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Well, that was 30 years ago. And I walk on that campus a lot. And every time I walk on that campus, I see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And when I go to teach a class, I'm reminded it's all about following a Savior. He doesn't rule by his titles, doesn't rule by his power, doesn't rule by his prestige. He rules hearts because he washes his disciples' feet. Art is part of our worship of the Lord. What I've often found in the Lord's work is probably somebody gave them money to have that. It had nothing to do with our tuition or anything else. Because that's the way the Lord's family works. You understand what I'm saying? 
I want to bless all of us to understand we need to enter in. It's a marvelous thing to wave palm branches, to get our bodies involved. And those of you that are painters, those of you that are sculptors, those of you that are artists, those of you that are into drama, we want to bless you. Often you're not blessed. In fact, I believe in reaching the present generation. We're going to reach them much more through the acts of breaking alabaster vessels and letting the aroma of Jesus spread throughout life than we are just through very strong Aristotelian logic. Then we have the next scene. It says, we switched, we went from the high priest conspiracy, now we have this beautiful picture of the humble anointing, and now we have a supposed disciple who's in transition. And look what he does. We have the gritty portrayal. Then one of the twelve, the one that's called Judas Iscariot. Now, you all know that he's a bad guy in the story, but you got to go back. The disciples think at this point he's our treasure. He's our trusted one. He's the one that we can fully trust. Went to the chief priest and he asked. So we're back to our first scenario today, back to the conspiracy. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins, about three months. The woman smashed and poured out on Jesus a year's salary. Judas betrays Jesus for the price of a slave, according to Deuteronomy, and it's about three months' wages, a paltry sum. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Matthew's taking you back and forth. Now we've got a disciple. Judas Iscariot wasn't the guy that, with the mustache and the melodramatic play. He was the guy that everyone trusted, the one that kept careful books, the one that kept all the money for the disciples' band. But now he's stepping over. He's not a true disciple. His heart is filled with greed. His heart is living for money. His heart doesn't respond to the humility and the worship of the woman that anointed Jesus' feet. And he steps over and he joins the conspirators. And Matthew wants you to ask yourself, where am I today? Where am I today? We're going to close this service, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is the setting. Judas is still sitting with the disciples, but he has joined the conspirators. And he's looking for the opportunity. And the high priest said it's not going to be during the festival, but the Old Testament predicted that Judas would be the Passover lamb. He writes the story, and Judas is going to betray the Lord and initiate the event so that Jesus is handed over. And he does die during the high festival. Look what happens in the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is a seven-day feast. Remember, the Israelites had to get rid of all the leaven representing the evil influences, the wicked influence, the idolatrous influences of Egypt. It says on the first day, as they're getting all their houses clean, and then it was joined with the Passover. So this is the morning of the Passover. The disciples came to Jesus and they asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, I want you to go into the city. Just like he did with the triumphal entry, he tells the disciples again, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. Notice again who's in control. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did. Here's the obedient disciples. And that's what I want to challenge all of you to do. You hear the voice of Jesus? You go and do it. You hear the voice of Jesus, you obey. They did exactly as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table, like I pictured you, 
a little bit earlier. And while they were eating, I tell you the truth that one of you will betray me. Again, Matthew's telling us who's in control. Who are you going to follow? Who do you want to really side with? Is it going to really be a good idea to join the plotting intrigue and turn away from your Savior? Because Matthew's telling us your Savior really knows what's going on. He's the one that's really the sovereign. All the rest of the disciples, they were very sad. They began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord, surely not I. I pray that that's your heart. But I want you to realize, what did all of these disciples do? Not just Judas, but all of them. What did they do? Tell me. And that's what I do. That's why we need grace. See, one of the things that Matthew wants us is to feel the power of this. They're all saying, surely not I. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to try to protect my own skin. I'm not going to try to preserve my own position of power. Oh, yeah? One of the reasons why I preach grace so strongly is I need it so badly. And the longer that I live, the more that I realize, unless you open your internal being, unless you open the depths of your personality and you really face the darkness within, you need to read the story and you need to realize that Judas can be inside of you. When you realize that, you will get down on your knees and cry out for the Savior to help you, and you will not destroy the Lord Jesus and his name and your loved ones. But if you get distant from Jesus, if you start play-acting, if you start playing roles, if you start lying, if you start saying the end justifies the means, you begin to walk out into the darkness away from Jesus. And I want you to know, nobody else might know what you're doing, but Jesus does. And that's what Matthew's telling us. Jesus replied, the one who is dipping his hand, who's around this circle, dipping his hand in the bowl with me, is going to betray me. In a Moroccan culture, to be able to eat like this is, a, is, an, is an ultimate act of you, we've given you fellowship. You are friends. Like I've shared with you how Mary and, and Leslie, my daughter-in-law's mom, were invited to meet with a Moroccan family. And the husband actually, instead of eating separately, ate with all of them. And they had this incredibly multi-course meal. That was table fellowship. That, that Moroccan leader of his home was saying, you are special. I want to accept you as my friends. On a much deeper level, the Last Supper is saying, you're lying together, you're eating together. Table fellowship. Invite your friends over to eat. You do that multi-different ways. That's what the body of Christ is about. That's what the Last Supper was about. It's about table fellowship. And who was going to be part of the inner circle? And don't quit on that because of betrayal. Because here we are 2,000 years later, Judas betrayed the Lord but it wasn't the end of the story. So you decide whether you're going to keep fellowshipping, keep eating with Jesus, keep loving the circle of disciples, or whether you're going to turn away. Jesus says, the one who dipped his hand with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to the man. Here's the responsibility. Every one of us is responsible. Jesus is writing the story, but we act out the part, and we're responsible. It would have been better for him to have never been born. Then Judas, the one who betrayed him, said, Surely not I. 
Not I, Rabbi. The other disciples say, Lord. But Judas just says, my teacher, my Rob. And Jesus said, yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Notice Jesus at the Last Supper is reminding us, this is my body. It's going to be broken so that we can have life, so that we can have forgiveness, so that our sin can be totally paid for. Just as he said, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We drink of the cup. It's the cup of the covenant. Remember I told you that Passover reminded us that we were being delivered from Egypt? We go to Sinai into a covenant. Today, you decide, am I part of the people of God under the new covenant? A covenant that fully admits and fully recognizes the core internal reality of our darkness. And just like Jeremiah 31 said, And just like Isaiah 53 said, that God would provide a Messiah. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah who's going to be the sacrifice for sin, the ultimate Passover. And this is the time when the Jewish Passover became the Last Supper, the communion table of believers.